Jesus, we do willingly and gladly lay down all of ourselves before you as an act of surrender, as an act of worship, longing to know you more, longing to honor you with every fiber of our being. And as we come before you now in this, preach this morning in this whole series, looking to behold you, we pray, please, by your spirit, would you reveal yourself afresh to us, where we get a fresh glimpse glimpse of who you are, in all your beauty, all your majesty, all your goodness. And in response, Lord, would our hearts be softened and would they beat for you? And would we be men and women who live in surrender, lives of worship to you, we ask. Spirit, come and be moving amongst us as we look now together at your word. Amen. The youth are going to go out, so do head that way from youth. You yourselves are going to start your own Jesus Is series this morning. Good morning, everybody. It's really nice to be here. It feels like it's been a little while since I've been at Hastings, so it's lovely to see your faces. And I'm really, really excited about this series we're starting today. Jesus is encountering Jesus in Mark's gospel. And really, all we're doing in this series is taking time just to stop and to think on and to behold Jesus. That's basically all we're aiming to do. It's a pretty simple aim. We want to behold Jesus afresh. And I think that is a beautiful kind of continuation of and extension of one of the themes that came out in our recent hunger season. The sense of God inviting us to behold him afresh and to come in worship to him in response to that. And really in this series and coming to behold Jesus, all we're doing is coming back to the very heart of the Christian faith, of the Christian gospel. Because the heart of the gospel is not really about us or about the forgiveness of sins or about eternity with God, although all those things are in there and they're good and wonderful and true. Really, the heart of the Christian gospel is Jesus. We're coming back to the very heart of our faith by coming back to Jesus. And that's a point made really well in this little book I thought I'd highlight at the start of this series, a book called Christ Our Life by Michael Reeves. Just a really wonderful introduction to who is Jesus and uh, what does that impact does that make on our lives. And just really kind of beautiful, worship-inspiring theology. And he actually, at the start of this book, he talks about Jesus being the center of our faith. He puts it beautifully. He says, the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. You see, as a Christian, you never progress beyond Jesus. It's not that sometimes we kind of focus on forgiveness, sometimes obedience, sometimes holy living, oh, and sometimes Jesus. No, it's always that Jesus is front and center, the center point of everything else. And so stopping to think on and look on and behold Jesus is just central to Christian life and to growing and thriving as a Christian. Another way that one pastor put it, back in the 19th century, a Scottish pastor called Robert Murray McShane, who's famous for a Bible reading plan you may have heard of, he was writing to a friend, and he put it this way. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. 
Friends, that's what we're looking to do in this series, to see and behold Jesus, to learn much of him, to look at him more than we look at ourselves, and to be filled with a sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ. And to do that, we're going to dive into Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And like all of the Gospels, this book is written to answer the question, who is Jesus? Actually, many of us might have recently read this gospel as part of our Bible reading plan, reading God's word together. But in a sense, this isn't a series so much on Mark as it's a series on Jesus. We're going to look at different episodes in Mark to draw out what do they show us about Jesus. So often we'll work through a book of the Bible seeking to draw out the key message. It's like we're kind of going on an expedition together, journeying through a story. This is going to be more like actually walking around an art gallery together looking at a number of different portraits of Jesus and looking at what do they highlight to us, what particular facet of who Jesus is do they draw out to us as we seek to behold him. And I want to really encourage us to take this series as a wonderful opportunity to have a season of deliberately beholding Jesus and responding to him. I want to encourage us in our connect groups, our small groups in the midweek context, to make the most of this series. We're going to produce a life app for each of the preachers, just designed to help us to wrestle with our understanding of these truths and our response to these truths. And I want to really encourage you, why not use those times when you're together to really focus on responding to Jesus together? expressing your worship to Jesus in prayer and in song. You might want to do different things, reflecting on some scriptures, taking some time to meditate on scriptures, whatever helps you to respond to Jesus in that context. And I think also this series is a great opportunity for us as individuals to have a season set aside where we're deliberately seeking to behold Jesus and to grow in our relationship with him in that way. Why not commit to each time over this kind of eight-week series, taking a bit of time each week just to reflect on the truths that we've looked at on the Sunday morning, just to pause and to find ways of connecting with it. And actually, to help with that, each week we're going to produce one of these personal reflection guides. Hopefully you picked up a copy on the way in this morning, which is just each week going to give some different ideas of how you could take five or ten or twenty, thirty minutes, an hour, however long you want to, just to spend a little bit more time beholding Jesus and connecting with him. We're not going to print this out each week, but it will be available on the website with the preach recording and also our social media platforms. So take a look there each week for just some ideas of how you can use this series in your own walk with God to connect with him. So Jesus is is our series, and today we're starting with Jesus is the Son of God. If you start reading Mark's Gospel, you'll find that is really the central theme. The first thing we're told about Jesus is that he is the Son of God. Mark 1 verse 1 The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But as we start the book there, you're meant to be asking the question, well, what does it actually mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? And actually, the whole book really is answering that question. But I think in the first 15 verses, Mark gives us an insight into three layers of meaning of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And that's what we're going to unpack today. So let's just start by reading Mark 1 in the first, first, first 15 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written on Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark opens this book by declaring, This Jesus is the Son of God. And in these verses, I think he's giving us three layers of meaning to what that means. And we're going to work backwards through the passage to briefly highlight those. The first thing Mark shows us is Jesus is the Son of God, a new Israel. You see, Jesus is not the start of the story. He's just the continuation of, really the center point, actually, of an ongoing story. Jesus doesn't appear on earth as a man until two-thirds of the way through the Bible. He comes into a story already going on. And that story was that God had chosen a people, and he promised that through this people, he was going to undo all the damage that sin had done to the world, all the damage that our rebellion against God had done to the world, he was going to undo through this people. He was going to put everything to rights, and through this one people, he was going to bless all peoples. There was this story of this people with a mission partnering with God. Well, as we're introduced to Jesus in Mark 1, we're meant to hear echoes of that story. We're meant to see the story of Israel in the story of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized and he's tempted in the wilderness, it's meant to make us think of the experiences of Israel back at the beginning of the story in Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, the wilderness wanderings. You see, early in this story, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt, and God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and he led them out there to be his people, to live with him under his rule and blessing. He rescued them. It's the story of the prince of Egypt, the plagues and stuff you're probably familiar with, and they came through the waters of the Red Sea. They were rescued through the waters of the Red Sea and came out of the waters into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they were there for 40 years being tested, and as happens, failing the test. Well, here we have Jesus going through the waters of baptism, coming out of the water into the wilderness, and in the wilderness being tested for 40 days. Israel in the wilderness testing 40 years, Jesus in the wilderness testing 40 days. We're meant to be hearing that Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. And that's really important because back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's son. God says in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. And that comes up several points in the Old Testament. It comes up in the prophet Hosea a number of centuries later, one of the books many of us have recently read in reading God's word together, where God says at the beginning of chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel was a son of God. Well, here we see Jesus reliving Israel's story and being called the Son of God. At the baptism, the voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved Son. Jesus is a new Israel. 
And why that's so important and exciting is, remember, Israel had a mission. Israel had been called to partner with God in his mission to undo all the damage of sin. This one nation going to be a blessing to all the nations, a plan to fulfill everything. But as you read through the Old Testament story, you realize it doesn't work out. Humans can't do it. Humans can't faithfully follow God. Humans can't worship him alone. Humans weren't able to partner with God in that mission successfully. But God still made the promises. He hasn't, and he can't revoke the promises. He's still got to undo the damage of sin. He's still got to bless all nations through Israel. Well, now here we have a new Israel. And whereas the first Israel failed the test in the wilderness, this Israel seems to succeed the test in the wilderness. Jesus comes as the Son of God, a new Israel, to fulfill God's mission of blessing all nations. That's the first layer of meaning that Mark wants us to understand about Jesus as the Son of God. But something else happens at the baptism, because we also see at Jesus' baptism that he is the Son of God, the Christ. Because when we read there about the baptism of Jesus, he's not just baptized and put down and brought up out of the water. We also see the Spirit descending upon him. We see the Spirit anointing him. We're told Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The Spirit comes and anoints Jesus. This is a picture we're meant to see of Jesus being anointed. And that's really important because that also speaks to us about who Jesus is. You see, going back to the Old Testament story, Israel had this mission of partnering with God, and the story shows us they weren't able to do that. That didn't work out. And as the story goes on, it becomes more and more apparent it's not going to work. These hopes start emerging. Actually, these promises start emerging of a future figure who will come, who will be successful in that mission and will partner with God in that mission. These hopes and these promises begin to emerge of a king who would come, and through this king, that mission would be fulfilled. And in the Old Testament, kings were anointed. They were anointed with oil. It was a, a picture of them being set apart for service to God, a picture of them being empowered by God. You might be familiar with the word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And so these hopes and promises of a future saving king became known as the promises of the Messiah, the anointed one. And then the word Christ is just the Greek version of the word anointed one. And so when we talk about Christ, we're talking about an anointed one. When Jews of Jesus' day talked about the Christ, they were talking about this promised king who would come and fulfill the mission given to Israel, would come and fulfill all of God's promises well, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, we're told Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one, the king we've been waiting for. And at his baptism, as the Spirit descends upon him, we see a picture of him being anointed by the Spirit. We're seeing a picture of the fact that he is the hoped for, the promised Christ, the king who would come and fulfill all God's promises, the king through whom God would fulfill his mission. Jesus is the Christ. You might think, what's that got to do with the Son of God? Well, it's got to do with the fact that the Christ was also known as the Son of God in the Old Testament, which kind of makes sense. Remember, Israel was the Son of God, but the mission of Israel gets passed to this figure, the Christ. It makes sense the Christ would then take on the identity of the Son of God, and that's exactly what we see happening in various places in the Old Testament. A classic example is 2 Samuel 7. God is talking to King David, talking to him about a king who's going to come after him and makes these amazing promises. And the promises about Solomon, the direct son of David, but really their promises looking beyond, talking beyond Solomon, because God talks about this kingdom that's going to be without end, the kingdom of God. 
And he talks about this king who's going to come who will be a son of God. God says to David, 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There's this promise of a king, a king from the line of David, a king of a kingdom that has no end. This is a kingdom unlike any other, because it's a kingdom that goes on forever, and this king is going to be the son of God. I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. Jesus is the son of God, the Christ, the promised king. And we're going to have more to say, actually, later in this series about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. Mark kind of fleshes that out more. But what he wants us to get here is, this is the one who's been promised. This is the one who's going to fulfill God's promises. This is the king we have been waiting for. Jesus is the son of God, the Christ. And the final thing that Mark wants us to see about what it means for Jesus to be the son of God in these opening verses is actually a truth that is even more profound, even more fundamental is that Jesus is the Son of God. He himself is God. And obviously, if you think about it, that's not inherent in being God's Son. Israel was called God's Son. They weren't God. Just because he's called God's Son doesn't make him God. But Mark wants us to see this Son of God truly is God. He is both human and God. The rest of Mark, the rest of the New Testament message is about telling us Jesus really is God. And here Mark does that in a rather clever way. He does that by the way he uses the Old Testament. And you'll notice Mark expects us to know the Old Testament really well because the Old Testament helps us to understand Jesus and what he does. You see, Mark, at the beginning of this passage, introduces this guy, John the Baptist, who's like this uh, forerunner, this guy who prepares the way for Jesus to come. And he uses a couple of Old Testament quotes to explain who John was and what he was doing. Quotes from Malachi, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, probably also influenced by Exodus, and also a quote from Isaiah. And that's the bigger chunk, which is why you might notice Mark says it's all from Isaiah, meaning that's the bigger chunk. And what's really important is if you go back and look at these quotes in the Old Testament, they are both about preparing for God to come. For God to come to his people to judge and to save and to deliver. Well, here, those passages are applied to Jesus. Let's have a look. Mark 2 quotes from Malachi 3, verse 1. Here's what the prophet Malachi says, God speaking, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, before God. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This messenger is one who comes just before God comes. God himself is going to come to the temple. Well, Mark here applies this to Jesus. Or look at the second one. In verse 3, Mark quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40 is a passage about God fulfilling his promises, forgiving his people, bringing them back to himself, and him coming again to dwell with his people. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Both these passages are about preparing for God to come, to come to his people, to judge and to save, to come to his people, to deal with the problem of sin, well, here, both those passages are applied to the one who prepares for Jesus to come. Do you see what Mark's doing? Mark's telling us that when Jesus comes, God has come. Mark is telling us that where Jesus is, God is, because Jesus 
is God. And that is fundamental to Christian belief and to who Jesus is. And it is worth pausing on this point and just kind of reflecting on it a little bit more because it's a controversial point. Maybe not quite so much among Christians, although some people who claim to be Christians will say Jesus isn't God. But maybe particularly among those who aren't Christians. You might have friends who might say to you, you know, I read this book or I saw this thing which showed that people didn't really believe Jesus was God until centuries after he was on earth. Or maybe they told you Jesus himself never actually thought he was God. That was all kind of made up a bit later. You might hear people saying, oh, Jesus was just a, a good man or just a teacher, or maybe he thought he was a prophet, but he never thought he was Jesus. Plenty of people in the world, plenty of books that will tell you that. But friends, the reality is the evidence just can't support that kind of view. The only conclusion the evidence can support is Jesus said he was God and he was God. Now, very soon after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jewish people worshipped him as God. The letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament show them worshipping Jesus as God maybe as little as 20 years after Jesus returned to be with God the, Fathers, God the Father. And it's hard to um, overstate how unbelievably radical and outrageous it was for a devout Jew like the Apostle Paul to worship a human as God. It's hard to overstate how radical and utterly impossible that was. The only explanation as to how within decades Jewish people were worshipping the man Jesus as God is that he had claimed to be God and he'd shown himself to be God. I really don't think there's any other plausible historical explanation for that phenomenon. It is so radical. And that then fits the picture we see in the Gospels. You find Jesus claiming to be God. That's made crystal clear because people point at him and say, you're claiming to be God. They accuse him of that. We'll see that next week, actually, in Mark 2, them saying, you're blaspheming, you're claiming to be God. It's really clear in the Gospels, Jesus is claiming himself to be God, which makes sense of the historical context we see afterwards. All that Mark is doing here at the start of the Gospel is helping us understand what Jesus himself had communicated in his life and in his ministry. And it is true that what we call the creeds of the church, which set out the identity of Jesus, came a few years later, a few centuries later. These creeds are these official summaries of Christian belief. They're what, for all time, all Christians have believed to be true about the fundamentals of Christian belief. They were written a few centuries after Jesus, but that's not because new stuff began to be believed then. That was just a summary of what Christians had always believed. It was a summary of what Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament had taught. And it happened a few centuries later, purely because it wasn't needed beforehand. Various controversies kicked off when they thought, we need to put down clearly, in summary form, what is fundamental orthodox Christian belief. It wasn't a new idea that Jesus was God a few centuries later. It was just the point where it needed to be written down in that way. Christians have always believed that Jesus is both human and God. That is a core part of orthodox Christian belief. But then you might also think, well, why does it really matter? And actually, we could spend ages on that. There's loads of reasons. I'm going to highlight just one today, which I think particularly helps us in this series. Why does it matter that Jesus really is God? It matters because it means Jesus reveals what God is really like. When you see Jesus, you see God. When you see in the Gospels Jesus interacting with sinners and sufferers, people like you and me, you're seeing how God interacts with people like you and me. You're seeing God's heart for us, God's love for us. Jesus is a window into the heart of God. Amen. A writer called T.F. Torrance put this beautifully. He said, There is, in fact, no God behind the back of Jesus. 
No act of God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God. The very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. And in this book I mentioned, Michael Rees reflects on that. He says, let us then be rid of that horrid, sly idea that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, there is some more sinister being, one thinner on compassion and grace. There cannot be. Friends, if you want to know what God is really like, look at Jesus, because he is God. If you want to know what God feels about you, look at how Jesus interacts with people about you. You want to know God's heart, look at Jesus because he is the open window into God's heart. Friends, that's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to look through this window to see what is our God really like as revealed in the God-man in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He's a new Israel. He's the Christ, the promised king, and he is God. And if all that is true, what then should be our response? How do we respond to this truth of Jesus as the Son of God? Well, handily, Mark actually tells us in these verses. He's giving us an opening overview of who Jesus is, and then he talks to us about the correct response to that truth. He actually quotes the words words of Jesus about what he was doing and how we should respond. Verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our response to this truth of Jesus as the Son of God is to repent and to believe, to be a follower of Jesus. Repentance means turning 180 degrees. So it's turning away from a life of rejecting God, away from a life of going our own way, and turning instead to walk with God. And belief means trusting that he's going to forgive me, he's going to accept me, and choosing to walk his way to live his way. Jesus is the Son of God, and the call to every single one of us in response to that truth is repentance and belief. And you may be here today, you may be a Christian, you may have repented and believed for the first time years and years ago, but friends, that isn't a one-time kind of tick-box exercise. Repentance and belief are meant to be the things that characterize Christian life. We're meant to live lives of repentance and belief. If you've been a Christian here for years or decades even, what God is calling you today is to respond in repentance and belief in response to Jesus, the Son of God. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. You've never made that decision. Friend, Jesus is the Son of God, and today he is calling you to that same response of repentance and of belief. Jesus reveals what God's heart is really like for you. Reveals God's heart of grace, of mercy, of love, of compassion, of longing and desire for you. He calls you to repent from a life of walking away from him, to trusting him for forgiveness, and to seek to live his way. And actually, you can do that today. You can do it in your own words as we respond in just a moment, as we worship together. But also, find someone to find out more, to ask some questions, talk to a person you came with or a friend you might have here, find one of the people in the lanyards who are serving today. They can talk with you or point you to someone who can or talk to one of the leaders. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus and what it means to follow him. The band could come up at this point, please. We've got some good time now just to worship, and it's a chance for us to commit ourselves afresh to Jesus. A chance for us to commit ourselves to that life of repentance and of belief and of faith. And a chance to just respond to Jesus, the Son of God, coming before him in worship. 
And as we kind of gather our thoughts and turn our hearts to do that, I thought it would be good to confess together, to speak out together our common faith using one of those creeds I mentioned. This is something Christians have done for hundreds and hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years, really. It's something some Christians do every single Sunday, a way of saying we believe these things and we are united in this belief together. And so we're going to use some words from something called the Nicene Creed from 381, a way that for hundreds of years Christians have declared who Jesus is. So why don't we stand as we begin to engage with God? We'll say these words together. The guys will lead us. We'll get to worship together. The words up on the screen, feel free to say them out loud with me. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Let's become, come before Jesus, the Son of God, and let's worship him together.